All right. Welcome. Welcome back to Biblos, the Biblos Network. We are so glad that you have come to join us today. Glad to spend time with you. Um, we are looking forward to talking about the great things of God. I pray that you're blessed where you're at. I pray that God's favor and his grace is on your life. It's a good day to be serving God, and I say that a lot because I believe it. I believe it fervently. Abraham rejoiced to see the day of Christ, and Jesus told us that greater things than these shall ye do. So we're living in the greatest time. God chose us to live in this day, to walk upright before him. We have the most amazing evangelistic tools at our fingertips. We have greater education than we've ever had, more revelation than we've ever had. And so I just feel like God is setting us up for wonderful things. So don't let anybody talk you into doom and gloom and we're all going down in flames and we don't know what's going to happen. The world is terrible. You can get pulled into a political partisan quagmire and buy into the narratives of doom and gloom on both sides, left and right and Democrat and Republican or whatever party you affiliate with. We are Christians. We are children of the Most High God. So we're going to claim that. We're going to walk in that. And it's a good day to be serving the Lord. We're glad you're with us. Um, we have received a lot of feedback from, from you, um, our listeners, and thank you for supporting the channel and, and, uh, providing your comments and your feedback and asking your questions. We get a lot of that. And this week I don't have, you know, a, a special guest. It's just me. And it is you, dear listener, our valued Biblos audience. Um, so I'm going to get to a couple of the questions people have asked and, and some of the comments that have been made. One of the things that has been, that has been asked is why, and this comes from a young man named Timothy. Timothy, I got your message and we're happy to look into some of this stuff for you. Hopefully it can be a blessing to you. Um, but Timothy asked why has the doctrine of the Trinity become so entrenched in Christianity? The, the, the doctrine of the Trinity is probably the most divisive issue in Christianity from a worldwide perspective. It is the primary reason that Jews reject uh, what they think is Christianity. It is probably the biggest obstacle for Muslims and other monotheistic Abrahamic faiths. And I am not equating oneness believers with Jews or Muslims. I am just pointing out to you that the biggest stumbling block is the doctrine of the Trinity because they rightfully see it as a division of God, how that God is somehow three and yet he is one, but that oneness is not a, a complete oneness to many of them. And then that just doesn't compute with the other Abrahamic faiths. And, and, it, and it's not in the Bible. And, and the, the sessions that we do on oneness are probably our most popular sessions and our most requested sessions. And that's okay because I, I want to be a champion of oneness. I believe firmly that there is one God and that Jesus, the man Christ Jesus, is the Son of God. He is not God the Son. He was not eternally begotten. He did not exist as the Son in some kind of a spirit form uh, from the very beginning, but he existed as God. He was God. 
But we don't call him God the Son. We call him the Son of God because it is a reference to his humanity. The Son of God is a a reference to the incarnation. And the Bible never uses the phrase God the Son, but it does the Son of God. That is a big deal when it comes to your Christology, when it comes to your your view of who God is and who God, um, how we're going to believe God and, and to extrapolate the scriptures. So he is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And instead of it being three beings who collaborate and work together and somehow mysteriously there's this mystic union, but yet they are apart, the word persons does violence to the essential oneness of God. And I'm, I'm saying all this to get to your question, Timothy, so I'm, I'm headed somewhere. Sometimes I, I just get to talking and it takes me different places. But um, that one nature, that oneness nature of God, you cannot divide it. Now, you can bring out different facets in that he is the Father, he is the Son, and he is the Holy Ghost. He's many other aspects of God as well. Those are the primary redemptive roles that he played, but he, the Bible records him in several capacities, and the Jews were familiar with this plurality of attributes. All of the Jehovah titles, Jehovah Nissi, Jehovah Sidkenu, uh, Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah Shalom, all of the Jehovah titles, it, those aren't multiple Jehovahs working together mysteriously. It's one God with many, many attributes. And, you know, there is this idea of a plurality of majesty that God of the Old Testament had, Elohim had, that he was one God who had many, many attributes and so many attributes that uh, they were multi, multi, multifaceted. It is the manifold wisdom of God. God has many folds. He has many facets. He has so many different ways of describing him, but it is one God behind all of that. And the fact that he became a man and it was genuine humanity is the only seeming division that is in there. So the man Christ Jesus, that flesh, it was man. It was 100% man. And there is a distinction between the flesh and the spirit. Paul shows us that distinction in Romans chapter 1 when he says that Jesus was of the seed of David, the household of David, according to the flesh. But it says he was declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit. So uh, Paul in Romans 1 describes this, but just because Jesus was an authentic human does not negate the fact that the God that was in him was the one indivisible God. So the Father became the Son. We know this from Isaiah chapter 9, unto us uh, a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulders. He would be wonderful counselor, mighty God. Everlasting Father, the child, the son, would be the everlasting father, and he would be the prince of peace. So there are Trinitarians that dismiss that, and Trinitarian dogma dismisses that. They have ways of trying to explain that away, but that is what the prophet Isaiah described it as. Now, to answer your question, Timothy, how did it get so firmly entrenched? Well, that is a a pretty fascinating historical discussion. And there's people that can do this far more eloquently than I can. We, I, I have friends, dear friends, who are, they are scholars of early Christianity. I am acquainted with early Christianity. It's a hobby of mine, but I'm by no means a scholar. But that's never stopped me from diving in. <laughs> so <laughs> let's just dive in and talk a little bit about it. 
Um, I think people underestimate the corrosive and degenerative power that Constantine exerted on the early church. Emperor Constantine, um, Rome was the world power. It was, it was the empire that dominated that day. Daniel saw that. He saw that there would be horns that would arise, world powers that would arise. He saw a great he-goat. He saw a ram. Um, he saw uh, horns arise. One horn was more stout than his fellows. All of those uh, apocalyptic and eschatological dynamics of the book of Daniel and Revelation. He saw the nation of of media Persia. He saw the nation of Greece and then Rome who would conquer them. And this was the nation that was in power when Jesus walked the earth. It was the context that, that Christianity arose within. Jesus was crucified um, under Roman rule. And after Jesus died and was resurrected and, and ascended up into heaven, there, there was a period of a couple hundred years where the Christians were severely, severely persecuted. They were, uh, this was a time when they were considered enemies of the state. They, um, they were seen as a subversive cult, a sect um, that was not submitted to the emperor worship of Rome. You were supposed to worship the emperor. Christians refused to do this, so they were viewed as... Um, dissenters and and maybe um, a rebellious faction. So they just lumped them in with all the other criminals and they were very uh, resisted in the 100s and, and the 200s. They tried to uh, burn all the, the writings, all the works that they had. They, 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 they were forced underground. They lived in the catacombs. If you've been to Rome, you know this. You've seen this. Um, it was persecuted by the Jews and then by the Romans. Early Christianity was severely persecuted, but the more they persecuted them, the more they grew. It, the, the book of Acts, the Acts 2.38 experience was so powerful, and Pentecost was so dynamic and so life-changing that they couldn't stop them. Military force couldn't stop them. Nero couldn't stop them. Nero, uh, history suggests that he burned down a big portion of Rome in an attempt to to do a big land grab, to take land and territory, and blame it on the Christians, a, a convenient little cult that he could that he could pin the crime on. And, and then he used the allegations to round them up and kill them and, and martyr them. And the way Nero killed Christians is, is a travesty. It's, it was, uh, he was a barbarian. He was actually, they say he was insane because of uh, inbreeding and incest. The, the Roman emperors and their families, they thought they were gods. And as such, they were not, to marry with mere mortals. And so they intermarried with family, and, and obviously with that kind of a genetic dynamic, they they had a lot of um, genetic anomalies, and, and they, they believed that they were insane. There was hemophilia. There was all kinds of uh, diseases, genetic diseases and disorders. So that's what it was like under Nero. And the Christians survived this. They, they not only survived it, they flourished. They grew and they grew. And the more they persecuted them, the more they grew. Well, eventually an emperor arose named Constantine. Constantine was one of rival emperors, people that were fighting for the, the 
full authority of Rome. And Constantine was a political opportunist. History records this. You know, there, there, there were things that, that were in place back then. If you've ever been to Rome and you've seen the Colosseum, you know where they killed Christians. I've walked through there. I have, I have seen where they brought out the gladiators and they, they caged the animals to bring them out for the, the entertainment of the bloodthirsty Roman mobs. What is no longer there is a, there was a 100 to 120 foot, by some different scholars' estimates, a statue of the god Sol, S-O-L. He was the sun god. Some say it was Nero. Nero built a statue of himself or, or began construction, but he died before it could be completed. And so they built this monument, 120-some feet tall, right outside the Colosseum. It would, it would have been leaning. Um, he was uh, naked. He was, he was not clothed. It was supposed to be the, the sun god. Well, each emperor that came along, they would chisel uh, their, the face of the god off and put their own face on there. And they'd carve their own face and then they'd die and then the next guy would come on. They'd, they would chisel off the previous guy, emperor's face and put their own face. Everybody wanted to be God. And here was this, they called it the Colossus of Rome, uh, the Colossus of Nero. You can, you can Google it. Uh, it's not there anymore. It was torn down uh, 300 years after it was built, but it was this massive statue and, and it was stood right next to the Colosseum. And that was in place when Constantine uh, was in power. Well, Constantine needed the help of the entire empire. He, he, he needed help. First of all, he needed help solidifying his, 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 uh, his people. Rome had conquered so many different people groups from so many different parts of the world that he couldn't bring them into unity. He needed a, a unifying theme, a unifying faith. And so how do you make someone in Africa and someone from the East and, and someone in, in Italy and someone in now what is known as Europe and England, how do you bring all of these disparate people, all these different kinds of nationalities and languages, bring them into one brotherhood? And the only way to do it, Constantine reasoned, was faith. I need to make everybody brothers. I need to make everybody one, unified. How can I do that? Well, at the same time, Christianity had grown to be a, a powerful force. No matter how they tried to stamp it out, the people were determined that they were going to serve Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ was very much on the rise. Now, uh, during that time, there was a pagan faith called Mithraism, a Mithraic worship, Mithra, the god Mithra. And he was a pagan god, a syncretic god that, that they worship. Many of the Roman elites worship them. And if, uh, when, you, when you tear down some of the ruins of ancient Catholic churches, they find underneath it, inevitably, under the, the stones, they find older ruins of temples dedicated to the god Mithra. And there were elaborate worship rituals and, and the Roman elites worshipped that god. They had, uh, it was kind of like a copy, a counterfeit of Christianity. They had a kind of communion. They had a, um, a father and a son and a, and a kind of a, a, a triune uh, dynamic. They, they talked about the shedding of blood for salvation. 
Um, there was a lot of pagan ideas that were woven through there that that Romans believed during that time that looked a little bit like Christianity. And so there was another Roman emperor that was fighting with Constantine. He was he was uh, an opposing pretender to the throne. His name was Maxentius. And um, they came to this battle at the, at the Milvian Bridge. It's it's an amazing historical read. You can you can look it up online. But it Constantine at the Milvian Bridge fighting against um, Maxentius for control of Rome. Whoever won this battle was going to be the emperor. And Constantine needed to get the Christians on his side. They were big enough. They had a big enough force. They were Christian soldiers. And he needed them somehow to get on his side. So Constantine invents a story. In the story, he says that the night before the battle, Jesus showed up. And he saw a cross. And when he saw the cross, Constantine said that Jesus told him, with this sign, you shall conquer. And he, the, the legend is that he painted it upon his shields. He, he painted it on um, his men's helmets. He, he claimed to see it up in the sky. And I think it was, um, I want to say Raphael or, or, or Donatello who, who painted that, uh, this, this um, famous scene of Constantine seeing the heavens open and God giving him this heavenly vision in this sign you shall conquer. And, and, and he beat Maxentius. He killed him. He, he, he uh, drowned in, in the river. I forget the name of the river right now. Um, yeah, it's running from me, but, but Maxentius dies and, and they've, they've captured this, uh, in reliefs and, in I even think it's on the arch of Constantine. If you go to Rome, if you, those of you that have been to Rome, you've been by the Colosseum, you see where the old statue of Nero stood and, and then you'll see the arch of Constantine and on the arch of Constantine, it tells the story carved into stone of how Constantine won the battle and became the greatest emperor of the world. Um, Interesting, there's no Christian symbols of any kind on there. There's no crosses. There's, there's no uh, Christian paraphernalia of any kind. And when he erected it, he didn't include Jesus. He, nothing. He spoke nothing of it. As a matter of fact, there's many Roman gods on there. There's the god of the river. There's, there's Jupiter. There's Apollo. There's all these different Roman gods that helped him win the battle. But on the Arch of Constantine, there's no Christian evidence of any kind. So why did this story take off? Well, the idea is that he created this story, this legend, to get Christians on his side, to help fight this holy war. And you're going to do it in the name of God. And we're going to win this. And I'm going to be a savior. And God's working through me. And Jesus gave me power and all this stuff. Well, during that time, there was another, um, he was supposed to be a Christian head. His name was Eusebius. E-U-S-E-B-I-U-S, Eusebius. He was considered by some to be an early church father. And Eusebius had always been um, on the outskirts. He'd always been on the outside looking in. He wanted power. And he wrote books, biographies about Constantine. And basically, he was a sellout, if you want to know the truth. Many scholars view him as being co-opted by Constantine and just being a propaganda piece for Constantine. That, folks, this had nothing to do with the book of Acts. It had nothing to do with the Bible. God's servants, the disciples, Jesus' followers never took up arms to fight. The scripture commands us um, 
it tells us the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Jesus tells Peter, put up your sword. They that live by the sword die by the sword. And he, and he heals Malchus' ear after Peter cuts it off. Um, and so to go to war and to use this as a political propaganda tool, Constantine used it just like he would any god. There's no genuine conversion. There's no Book of Acts conversion. But that was the man who convened the Council of Nicaea. This battle, I think, I want to say the Milvian Bridge was like around 318 or 312 or something like that. Uh, it's running from me, the exact date. But later he convenes this council, 325 AD. Um, Eusebius was a part of it. And during that, that, during that council, that convened council, they ratified all of these Christian creedal concepts of which one was the Trinity. And Tertullian had, con, had come up with this term, uh, Trinitas, that God and, and tres personae, God and three persons, one God and three persons. And it, it was a, a theater term. We've already talked about that in, in, a, in, a, in another earlier session. You can go back and look at the, the oneness of God uh, episodes that we've done. But to allow a pagan emperor to use the money of Rome and the power of Rome to form a Christian foundation is where pagan influence infiltrated into what they call the church. There with the money of Rome and the polytheistic foundation of Rome, Greco-Roman ideology, they formed a Roman state church. There they claim to be the original church. This is what Catholics trace their origins back to, Baptists, Methodists, and I'm calling names out. I don't mean to disparage anybody. There are many people in these faiths that are wonderful, wonderful people who love the things of God, who are very sincere Christians, and they don't know that their religion and their ideology comes from Rome. It does not come from Jerusalem. There's so many things in that Nicene Council that are not in the Bible. God in three persons, um, eternal son, um, co-equal, co-eternal, con-essential. None of those ideas uh, are in the Bible. Um, homoousius, um, all, all, the, all the different Latin words that, that, that are part and parcel with the doctrine of the Trinity. And the Trinity itself, the word Trinity, is not in the Bible. So it's, it seems like it'd be such a simple concept. If it's not in the Bible, you shouldn't believe it. <laughs> that would seem to be a big deal. I mean, we should probably believe something if it's in the Bible. And if it's not, we don't. But it's stunning. It's stunning the people who just skip right by that. And they allow extra biblical terminology and extra biblical um, writers to form their opinion of the scriptures. So all of this traces back to Constantine. And you're talking about 2,000 years of reinforcement. Now, if you... If you go on and you you take the Catholic influence for 1,200 plus years during that time, up into the 1500s, so from the 300s up to the 1500s, and by the way, you know, in prophecy, it says that there would be 1,260 days, the woman would flee from the face of the serpent for 1,260 days. 
Well, it's a day for a year, 1260 years, the serpent would pursue the woman and she would go into the wilderness. Well, the woman is the covenant people of God. And God was saying that for about 1260 years, there's going to be a, a persecution, a terrible persecution. The serpent is going to try to destroy her. And so a lot of this is, um, has a lot of eschatology tied to it. But during that time, the, the, the Catholic persecution, the Spanish Inquisition, the murder of the Huguenots, um, the, I, I mean, I can go on and on with all the people who were killed. Probably the most notable person who was killed was Michael Servetus. Michael Servetus um, was a oneness Christian who baptized in the name of Jesus and he would not subscribe to the idea of the Trinity for the same reasons we don't. It's not in the Bible. And it doesn't matter how much they rail against that, how much people push back on that. It is not in the Bible, period. And so if that's not there, don't believe it. So for 2,000 years, so much of this reinforcement. The Catholics, for those 1,200 years, they banned people from reading the Bible. If you were caught with a copy of the Bible, they killed you. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that? Here, now we are in a free society. And, and to think that there was a religious institution who claimed to be the church, holy wars going on, and, and, and the worship of relics, and the worship of saints, and infant baptisms, and and the popes and, and all the decadence of the popes. If you want to know about uh, the kind of wickedness and depravity that happened during that time, read about the popes and the stuff they, they did. Um, they would have parties, lavish parties, and they would have uh, children there to, to be a part of the party and part of the entertainment. And they would, they would bake or they would make the child inside of a cake and the child would jump out. And, and there, there was this child jumping out of a cake and they would... It was part of this big lavish party given to the popes. Uh, It's crazy, the stuff that they used to do. And and you can read some of these historical dynamics. Now, they want to gloss that over now. They want to forget all about that. But listen, there there are atrocities committed in the name of religion. And uh, we did a session on, you know, you're mad at the wrong woman. And, And the woman of Revelation 17 versus the woman of Revelation 12. But God has a bride, and she's precious, and she saves, and she nurtures, and she delivers. And there's another woman that is a pretender who is drunk with the blood of the saints. And it is, it is the Roman Catholic Church. It is, it is false doctrine. It is the false religious system that would, that would kill people. And, and they did that for well over a 1,000 years. And then through even through the Protestant ranks, Protestants martyred and killed people and and you have people just murdering people in the name of the Lord, trying to stamp out any dissenter who didn't believe like they did. Well, if you do that for 2,000 years, then it becomes ingrained. Men can't read the Bible, and so they don't know what's in the Bible. And so doctrines form. They baptize babies because they were told to. The, the um, illiteracy rate of that day was, was, it was the norm. Europe fell into terrible superstition, um, ignorance, basic hygiene, basic, basic things that we take for granted today. They did not have, and, and it was called the dark ages because men couldn't read the light of knowledge. The torch of knowledge was withheld from them. And the Bible was first and foremost of that. If you were caught with scripture, they killed you. 
And if you taught anything that dissented from that, they killed you. The Pope had a standing army. He, he had Jesuit assassins. He could kill his, his, anybody that opposed him, any, any of his political enemies. The kings of the earth trembled at the power of the Pope. And so all of these things, this is what entrenched all these false doctrines. And the one that has endured the most is the doctrine of the Trinity. This is a historical perspective. And every Protestant, and every and Protestant comes from the word protester. Martin Luther protested. He was a Catholic monk who, who uh, in the 1500s said a lot of this stuff's not in the Bible. And he, he did have the courage to do that. But all of them, the, the, the Protestants that came forth from the Catholic Church and the Catholic Church, um, they all hold to the doctrine of the Trinity because they trace their origin back to 32580. At that, at that Roman council convened by Constantine, that was a propagandist political stunt to just win power. He took the power of Rome, the money of Rome. He organized and legitimized a false church that they would then later call the Roman Catholic Church. And that, that group is responsible for the atrocities and the terrible, terrible things that have happened throughout the millennia. And it became entrenched and it became part of the fabric, part of the assumptive fabric and foundation of what they call Christianity. And it's not. It is not. It is a, an imposter church. It is a harlot church. It is a false church. It has nothing to do with the book of Acts, the apostles, the original church. There, there were dissenting people. I, I'll give you an example. There were dissenters there. One of them was a guy named Arius. And Arius taught, he became the father of what they call the Arians, and he taught a version of monotheism, one God. And today his followers would be, uh, they would be Jehovah's Witnesses and people like that, that have a view of God, that God is subordinate, and that, um, that Jesus is subordinate to God, rather the Son is subordinate to the Father, and they have very divergent, unscriptural views of Jesus. Another man during that time, his name was Sibelius. And a lot of times, one as Pentecostals, we get accused of being Sabellians. And, and as best we can tell from what we know, we're not Sabellians. Um, Sibelius taught that, that there was a sequential modalism, that, that God was the Father, and then he stopped being the Father, he became the Son, and then he wasn't the Son, then he became the Holy Ghost. And when he became each one, he stopped being the other. So it was a sequential uh, modalism. That's what they charge him with. But here's the interesting thing about Sibelius. This is what really intrigues me. None of his writings exist. We know nothing of him. And what we do know came from his enemies. What we have are voluminous amounts of attack works, writings that are against this guy named Sibelius who baptized in Jesus' name, who believed in one God and denied the Trinity and what they say, what his enemies say, is that he had millions of followers, that Trinitarians were the minority, that he was evil, he was a subverter of people, that he had too much power, he needed to be brought to heal, he needed to be killed and excommunicated. And, and that's a lot of writing against him. I mean, volumes of work against him. And, and he was a prolific writer because they were writing in response to what he was writing and he was converting millions of people. But when a certain group wins a battle, 
they go about burning and destroying the works of anybody that's in opposition to them. And they say that the victors write the history books. The Catholics were famous for this. They would look up and they would, they would burn any books that were contrary to what they believed so that, so that the surviving works of their adversaries couldn't influence later generations. So there's nothing that survives of Sibelius. All we have is what his enemies wrote of him. Now, folks, I have a couple enemies in my life. Um, not many, thank the Lord, but there's one or two, maybe three, <laughs> that are enemies that they just don't like me. They Some even hate me. And I'm sure you have people that don't care for you. Most folks have uh, enemies of some kind. David had enemies. You're going to have enemies if you try to live for God. Um, but if they wrote a book about me, <laughs> I shudder. I shudder to think of what they would say. If that is what the world saw me as and, and, and the lens through which they viewed me, I would be very, very afraid. And that's how that's all we have into Sibelius is, is what his enemies said of him. So I asked myself this question, who is this man who baptized in Jesus' name, who had a firm monotheistic perspective, who denied the Trinity and had millions of followers, who wrote voluminously, we know because he had so much writing opposing what he wrote, and not one thing exists of what he wrote. I find that amazing. And what I suspect is that throughout history and throughout time, there have been great oneness uprisings that were resisted, that were co-opted, that were subverted, that were worked against and uh, even destroyed. They worked hard to destroy them. I know of Michael Servetus that John Calvin killed him. He murdered Michael Servetus. So all of you Calvinists out there that watch this for ammunition, um, that's your spiritual father. And... You need to think long and hard about that. You know, that's why John Calvin's not worthy to follow. It's why Martin Luther's not worthy to follow. It's why Constantine is not worthy. Eusebius or any of the early church fathers are not worthy to follow or to, to use as a source. Only the apostles are, are worthy of that. The followers of Jesus Christ, the ones who followed the lamb whithersoever he went. These are the ones who are who are in the foundation of heaven and Jesus Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. So we can only rely upon the works of Peter, James, and John, upon the works of the Bible itself. Early church fathers, early church history, you know, you can read it, you can read it for context and try to get a sense of the mindset back then. But none of them are worthy to build our doctrines upon. And so from the Council of Nicaea on and the various creedal statements and councils that followed after that, they found that Trinitarianism was much more compatible with the Roman paganism. Things, a syncretic, which, which means to, to blend religions. Syncretism is the blending of religions. So ancient Egyptian religions blend with Greek religions, blend with Roman religions. If you've ever been to... Um, Israel, then you you go to, eventually, they will likely take you to the gates of hell. And there you'll come to Pan's Grotto. You'll come to a place where the ancient people of Israel, uh, of Canaan, it's a place where the waters roar down from the mountains, and it's it's where it, it, it goes underground. There's this underground river and it shakes the ground and it roars and there's this foam that's coming up. And, and the ancient people believed it was a, the gateway to hell. 
And this is Matthew 16, where Jesus stood and preached the message. Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatsoever thou bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he, he was standing there, scholars believe, right there at what they call the gates of hell. Ancient Canaanites would take their children, and, and Israelites would throw their children into this raging river that went underground, and there they would they, the, the river would take their children as a sacrifice to the gods. And they have these, these altars set up all around there to all the different gods, uh, the different Roman gods, the different Canaanite deities. Um, Jesus confronted all of these things, and he was saying that I'm going to build a church. All of those gods, the Egyptian gods that, that God cast down, that Yahweh cast down through Moses when he brought them out of Egypt, the Greek gods that couldn't deliver the Greeks, and the Roman gods that now exist, Jesus was saying they are all going to bow before this church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against this church. Trinitarianism is an offshoot of that syncretic, multi-polytheistic Godhead. It was more compatible. You could pray to saints. You could uh, worship and pray to relics. You could pray to Mary. You could worship and pray to three different beings, persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. All of this is an abomination and a terrible aberration from the Jewish concept. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. That greatest of all commandments in the Scripture is fulfilled through Jesus Christ, who is God in flesh. And oneness apostolics hold to that and believe that with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength. We will not back away from it. We will contend for it earnestly because it is the truth. It is the truth. There is only one God, and his revealed name to man is Jesus Christ. Jehovah salvation, Jesus Christ. And so that's me preaching about the oneness. Great men and women of God have contended for that over the years. And... Um, that is why the Trinity became so ensconced. It became so entrenched in, in the mindset of what is called Christianity. And people believe it today. Um, but I have a recommendation for you. If you're, try, if you're struggling with whether to believe that or not, read the Bible. Just read the Bible. I, I've heard a story about a, 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 a debate between a oneness scholar and a Trinitarian scholar. And the oneness scholar stated at the outset of the debate, he said, let's lay some ground rules. Uh, ground rules. First of all, the first ground rule is you can't use any terminology that's not in the Bible. And the Trinitarian <laughs> scholar, he, he agreed to it. He thought that he could do that. And, and every time he later on in the debate when he tried to bring up the Trinity, the, the oneness scholar would shut him down. No, 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 we're only using... Biblical terminology. He tried to talk about the eternal son. Nope, shut him down. It's not in the Bible. And co-equal, co-eternal, persons in the Godhead. None of it is none of it's in the Bible. And so it is a Catholic remnant. It the Protestants did not fully expunge it from uh, their doctrines. And so that is why oneness believers push back strongly on that. We know 
who the mighty God in Christ is, that God was in Christ, to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. And um, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are one God, three manifestations of that one God. And um, yeah, so that's that, Timothy. It's a long way around the block to get back to the point, but that is how Trinitarianism became so firmly ensconced. For thousands of years, they killed you if you didn't believe it. And and Constantine forced the entire empire to become, quote-unquote, Christian. So when that's done under threat of sword and duress and violence, people, they tend to convert if you don't give them a choice. Um, and then through the Inquisitions and the Holy Wars, if you didn't do it, they killed you. It, it created conformity, and they tried to make it in the image of, of their doctrines. But they're not in the Bible, and we live in a new world today, and there is a rising oneness uh, scholasticism that is pushing back on it and saying, hey, this should be in the Bible. It's not in the Bible, and that's why we're not believing it, and there's nothing they can say about that. So it's a good day. Like I said before, it is a good day to be serving God. Well, this is going to be a shorter session today, guys. I have got uh, a lot of work on my plate, and I know a lot of you have came to me and said, uh, or written to me and said, yeah, I wish the sessions were longer. I wish they would go a little longer, and we're going to do some longer sessions. This next week, we have our East Coast Conference, and we want you to come out. We want you to come be a part of it. It's here in Durham. It starts Tuesday night. We start with the ministry of Pastor Rick Mayo. Wednesday night is Pastor Daniel McKillop from Plaster Rock, New Brunswick, Canada. What a preacher. Uh, he's, he, um, he is a, the owner of a great podcast himself. We hope to get him here on Biblos by the grace of God. Thursday night is Brother Larry Booker, and, and then Friday night is Brother Antonio Lagunas and also Brother Ari Prado and some other speakers that are speaking for the Spanish East Coast. So it is going to be a great time. We want you there. We want your family there. Come ready to celebrate and have a great time in the Holy Ghost. Um, great music, great fellowship, great worship. And we're going to, by the grace of God, get some great podcast material for that. Who knows? We might get a two or three hour podcast with, with some of these great men of God. So thank you for your support. Thank you for your continued prayers. And um, we'll be praying for you. And until next time, God bless you. God keep you. God cause his face to shine upon you.